to this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I respond to a run-in that I had with a young earth creationist responding to, uh, well, I would say my view on Genesis 1, except that he didn't take the time to read my paper on the topic, and he didn't really ask any questions about what I believe about Genesis 1. So let's just say that he was responding to a rather vague concept of the literary framework interpretation of Genesis 1. The article that's referenced in this show will be listed in the show notes for those of you who would like to read it directly, but more on that to come. If you enjoyed this episode and the other content put out by the Freed Thinker podcast, please consider sponsoring the show by clicking on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog page or by looking up the Freed Thinker on Patreon. If you can't afford to sponsor the show but you'd still like to share your support, please head on over to iTunes and give a five-star rating and leave a review. The more stars and reviews, the better the show will be listed in search results. Well, With that, let's jump right into this episode dealing with Young Earth Creationism and the Literary Framework Interpretation. Enjoy the show. On a recent post on Facebook where I was discussing the Literary Framework Interpretation of Genesis, I had a rather unpleasant run-in with a man by the name of Jonathan Serfati. Some of you may know him as a rather vocal advocate of young earth creationism and a writer at creation.com. I've never personally read anything of Serafardi's prior to this encounter, but he's apparently looked at as one of the better representations of the young earth creationist position. I'd like to share a couple of thoughts on the interaction on Facebook and then respond to the article that he co-authored responding to the framework interpretation that he kept sharing on that thread in Facebook. Now the context of this interaction was a thread on Nick Peters' post asking his young earth creationist and old earth creationist friends what they would do if they had incontrovertible scientific evidence that their view on the age of the earth was wrong. Somewhat sarcastically, I asked why us uh, literary framework advocates are never included in these questions. I mean, honestly, I know the answer, by the way. It's because we typically are not concerned with the age of the earth or the science because our view of Genesis and the cosmology of the Bible is scientifically neutral, and these questions and others such as evolution. We just don't have a dog in that fight. But I like giving Nick a hard time from time to time, so I asked anyways. The thread was interesting and lighthearted and the conversation was going well and most people seemed to get the joke and we were still having a fruitful discussion about if I had a view apart from what I thought uh, the Bible taught on these issues about the age of the earth. Then Sarfati commented, I I don't want to say that a deep dark cloud then descended on the thread, but let's just say that the tone of the thread became rather hostile rather quickly. 
Here was Sarfati's initial comments about my question, why Nick left out the literary framework view. He says, quote, what about it? And then he quotes himself, by the way. He says, quote, the framework hypothesis is probably the favorite view among ostensibly evangelical seminaries that say they accept biblical authority, but not six ordinary days of creation. It is strange if the literary framework were the true meaning of the text that no one interpreted Genesis this way until Ari Nordzig, I can never pronounce it, Nordzig in 1924. Actually, it's not so strange because the leading framework exponents, Meredith Klein and Henry Blosher, uh, admitted that their rationale for this bizarre novel interpretation was a desperation to fit the Bible into the alleged facts of science. For example, Klein admitted in his major framework article, quote, to rebut the literalist interpretation of Genesis Creation Week propounded by the younger theorists is the central concern of this article, end quote. And Blosher said, quote, the hypothesis overcomes a number of problems that plague the commentators, including the confrontation with the scientific vision of the most distant past, end quote. And he further admits that he rejects the plain teaching of scripture because, quote, the rejection of all the theories accepted by the scientists requires considerable bravado, end quote. The writings of the framework advocates are marked by a lack of clarity. Clearly, the framework idea did not come from trying to understand Genesis, but from trying to counter the view held by scholar and layman alike for 2,000 years that Genesis records real events, records real events in real space-time. End quote. That was Sarfati's comment. Now, <clears throat> this is a quote from the article that he linked in that comment which he co-authored with a few other people. This is a common tactic for Serfati from the rest of the thread as well, to quote and link to himself saying the same thing, as if those who are disagreeing with him will say, I disagree with you, but when I see that you wrote the exact same thing in an article, woe is me, my hermeneutic is undone. Even after pointing out the ineffective nature of this tactic, he continued to do it. Further, the rhetoric of this quote that he commented with, besides being somewhat brash, is a tactic which C.S. Lewis called bulverism. It's a kind of blend of begging the question while at the same time trying to speculate about motives. That is, it begs the question while it engages in the genetic fallacy. So it's doubly fallacious. There are numerous other problems with this quote that others in the group, like Elijah Thompson, pointed out as well. For example, the double pejorative that those who affirm literary framework are only, quote unquote, ostensibly evangelical. And for those of you who haven't seen the quote, evangelical itself is in quotes. This would mean that those who do not hold to young earth creationism, according to Sarfati, are not even fit to be called evangelicals. Now, I'm not sure what one's view of Genesis 1 has to do with if they're committed to sharing the gospel. I mean, that's what evangelical means. But on top of that, 
many people are already being deeply concerned about the label to begin with because of the politics of the movement as a demographic, its commitment to neoconservatism, as well as social and economic policies that are at times downright antithetical to the ministry example given in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. So while I'm sure Serfardi thinks that this is some kind of major insult or some major thing that most of us are going to say, no, no, it either shows a spirit of incharitability or else it lacks an awareness about the concerns about that label that some of us have to begin with. Two other major issues arise, however, at this point that I'd like to cover here because it's spanned into the discussion that continued in the thread, and it's not merely confined to the article. First is the idea that because the literary framework is a recent and novel interpretation, that it should be rejected. He said just a few comments later, quote, If it were truly the teaching of scripture, then how come no one ever taught it before? Theological novelty is almost always error and is sometimes heresy, end quote. Now, Sarfati seems to believe that just because something is late, that it can be rejected out of hand without really engaging with it. While I agree to a degree that late and novel interpretations are increasingly less plausible or probable, that in no way can be a catch-all dismissal for them. For example, we have views on slavery and women and children and covenants and so forth that are drastically more nuanced and different than, say, those of the early church. In fact, because of some of the other things that Sarfati said, and based on the Star of David and his profile picture and his palpable commitment to an overly literalistic hermeneutic, I had a hunch that he was a dispensationalist in his theological commitments as well. This has been confirmed by some other people um, who has affirmed this for me. Now, this would pose a radical consistency problem for him and the standard of late equals wrong, since dispensationalism and the view of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church and the hard ontological distinction between the church and Israel simply did not exist until near the end of the 19th century, only about 40 years before Nordzij, however you pronounce it, first started publishing on the literary framework. Now, when I asked him if he affirmed dispensational theology over a dozen times, he refused to answer. Without speculating on motives, the more he refused to answer, it really began to feel very hard to not assume he saw the problem of the consistency, or rather the inconsistency, with a standard that he had laid out. Now, the other problem is that he continually, in the article and in the comments, attempts to invalidate the literary fr framework by asserting that the motivation behind advocating for it is, quote, a desperation to fit the Bible into the alleged facts of science, end quote. He then quotes Blocher as saying, quote, the, this hypothesis overcomes a number of problems that plague the commentators, including the confrontation with the scientific vision of the most distant past, end quote. The problem, however, is that he's misattributing what Blocher is simply stating, uh, which, which is just that there's a benefit of the theory with the cause for accepting the theory 
or endorsing the theory or believing the theory. Notice Serfati states that Blosher is knowingly rejecting what he believes is the plain meaning of scripture because he's desperate to align the Bible with science. Well, is this what Blosher was saying or even doing? Not at all. Let's look at what Blosher said in context. On page 50 of his book, In the Beginning, Blosher wrote, quote, The literary interpretation takes the form of the weak attributed to the work of creation to be an artistic arrangement, a modest example of anthropomorphism that is not to be taken literally. The author's intention is not to supply us with a chronology of origins. It is possible that the logical order he has chosen coincides broadly with the actual sequence of the facts of cosmogony, but that does not interest him. He wishes to bring out certain themes and provide a theology of the Sabbath. The text is composed as the author mediates the finished work so that we may understand how the creation is related to God and what, it is, what is, is its significance for mankind. This hypothesis overcomes a number of problems that plague commentators. It recognizes ordinary days but takes them in the context of one large figurative whole. The difference in order between two, the two tablets, i.e. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, no longer causes difficulties. Neither does the delay in the creation of the stars, nor does the confrontation with the scientific vision of the pedistant past. So great is the advantage, and for some the relief, that it could constitute a temptation. We must not espouse the theory on the grounds of its convenience, however, but only if the text leads us in that direction. End quote. Notice that Blosher himself says that we should only accept the theory if the text itself demands it, not solely because of the secondary benefits or the explanatory scope and value of the theory. However, this is the point of the statement that Serfati rips from its context to mean the exact opposite of how Blosher actually meant it, and he states that the theory does have numerous benefits and, if true, resolves numerous problems common to other young earth creationist and old earth creationist views. Yet for Serfati to cast Blosher's motive as being driven by what he expressly says is not only not a motive, but even what ought not to be a motive to begin with is just unacceptable for him to do. Not only would it be an example of the genetic fallacy to try to invalidate a view by appealing to the motives of the advocate, even if he was being accurate, but it's doubly disgraceful to misrepresent those motives to be the exact opposite of what he expressly says in the rest of the quote, if he were to read it in context. Now, the rest of the thread was a combination of Serfati refusing to answer direct questions and debating about what the early church fathers believed. Again, somewhat an inconsistent standard since he not only lambasted other commentators for having any authority besides the scriptures while then trying to hold up the church fathers as a benchmark for orthodoxy, but also because I guarantee that Sarfati holds many beliefs that are either direct refutations or contradictions of views that the church fathers largely held. For example, is he a paedobaptist? I doubt it. Does he affirm subordinationism? I really hope not. Does he approve of economic servitude? I doubt that as well. 
does he reject the organized and author authorized canon of the 66 books of the Bible? I really hope not, and so forth. On top of that, Sarfati kept accusing me of never having engaged with the, quote, exegetical refutations of the literary framework, to which I kept pointing out that he hadn't provided me any in the thread. He would then huff and ask if I read his article that he linked, to which I somewhat snarkily asked if he had read my article about Genesis 1, which I had linked in the thread before he even began tantruming, another question he refused to answer. With the comments about the Facebook interaction out of the way, I'd like to turn my attention to the article that he referenced, because I would like to examine the exegetical refutations of the literary framework model, which, by the way, there are almost no exegetical comments in this article, but that's aside. This article is called, the, the title is, Is Genesis Poetry Figurative, a Theological Argument Polemic, and Thus Not History? It's a rather clunky title, and if I'm being honest, a rather misleading one right off the bat. It does appear to highlight the false dichotomy between poetic and figurative versus non-historical. This has always been a bizarre dichotomy for me to wrap my head around since we have such clear examples, even in the Bible, of poetry about historical events. I mean, we can think of Moses' song about the Exodus in Exodus 15 and Deborah's song in Judges 5. We have these full chapters of poetry that we know represent in figurative language and structure real historical events. Why people keep parroting this dichotomy that something must be either historical or poetic and figurative is simply beyond me. Now, since we've already dealt with the introduction to the article, which is really what Serfardi quoted as his first comment to me, we're going to skip that for now and dive into the body of the article. He attempts to address the literary framework uh, by asking four questions. Are the Genesis 1 days real history? Are there a triad of days? Does Genesis 2-5 teach that only normal providence and nothing miraculous was used? Is Genesis merely a theological argument or a polemic? We'll address these questions in that same order. So first, are the Genesis 1 days real history? Sarfati and his co-authors start this section with a level of confidence that's almost unfathomably triumphalistic, bordering on the absurdly cocksure. They write, Quote, Genesis is, without any doubt whatsoever, most definitely written as historical narrative. Genesis is not poetry or allegory. End quote. This not only begs the question of their position, it also reveals a glaring misunderstanding of literary framework and its advocates. Literary framework doesn't require one to hold that Genesis 1 is Hebrew poetry. In fact, while many like myself have pointed out that it employs more literary structures than some universally agreed upon Hebrew poems do, such as chiasm, repetition, theme development, imagery, stylized structure, and so forth, the reason that nearly all scholars, even literary framework advocates, agree that it's not poetry is due in large part to the absence of couplets and dichotomous parallelism. So, the problem is not that the literary framework says that Genesis 1 is poetry. Most don't say that. 
although there might be some merit for those who do, it's that we say that it's not literal history, which for those like Sarfati is just synonymous with narrative, so they can't fathom the difference, and we'll see that played out shortly. Sarfati continues, quote, Hebrew uses special grammatical forms for recording history, and Genesis 1 through 11 uses those, end quote. Here, Serfati engages in the long-debunked canard that however one reads Genesis 1, so goes how they must read the entire pre-Abrahamic history, or the, or the primeval history, of Genesis 1-11. through 11. This is just simply nonsense. In fact, most literary framework advocates see a literary and conceptual shift early in the second chapter of Genesis, or at least by chapter 3 when all of the stylized structures and repetition noticeably drop off and are no longer employed. To lump Genesis 2, or at the very latest 3, through 11 in the analysis is just wildly uncharitable. On top of that, there's a subtle equivocation that he makes in saying that, quote, Hebrew uses special grammatical forms for recording history, end quote. Well, in fact, these special grammatical forms, which we'll soon discuss, do not delineate history, but narrative. Those are related but distinct concepts. Not all history is narrative, for example, the Song of Moses and the Song of Deborah, and not all narrative is history. For example, Nathan's parable in 2 Samuel 12 and Jotham's fable in Judges 9. For Serfardi and his co-authors to conflate the two is simply a flagrant misrepresentation, and we'll explore these more shortly. He then attempts to ram through one of these grammatical forms known as the Vav consecutive, also depending on your, how you were trained, the Wav wa consecutives, or the Wow consecutive, as if it characterizes historical writing. That's his quote, characterizes historical writing. Now, the Vav consecutive is a certain form in Hebrew where an imperfect verb form preceded by the Hebrew letter Vav typically references a chronological sequence and is translated in the form such as, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. He here again conflates historical with narrative. Now, while he's mostly correct that the Vav consecutive typifies narrative, this isn't always the case. There are noticeable poetic sections, such as David's song in 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, as well as others, which have numerous examples of Vav consecutive being used. Therefore, we cannot make a hard and fast rule that its, its use, or the use of the Vav consecutive, automatically necessitates the genre decision that it must be narrative, let alone history. However, most literary framework advocates, myself included, would happily concede the point that the Vav consecutive is almost always used to, devote, to denote narrative, and even that Genesis 1 is a kind of narrative. The problem is that the conflation of narrative with literal or chronological history. It even represents a real historical act of history, namely creation, rather than a kind of stylized and thematic or figurative presentation of that historical event, namely creation. 
to that effect, the next several features that he presents, which honestly get successively less convincing and less attested to in the academic literature, can simply be stipulated and agreed to since they're all pointing to the fact that Genesis 1 represents a kind of narrative. That does not gain Seraphardi and his co-authors the cash value that they think it does because they are equating narrative with history. Now, I previously mentioned two other narratives, Nathan's parable and Jotham's fable. I wonder if Sarfati would argue that because they're written in a narrative form and they employ the Vav consecutive, that they therefore must be read as literal and straightforward history. That there really was a rich king who stole his shepherd's uh, his shepherd citizen's favorite sheep, and that Nathan is telling that as a real account of history, not just you know that it might have happened somewhere sometime that there really was a gathering of different kinds of trees that all got together and wanted to choose a king for themselves and that after the olive tree the fig tree and the vine turned it down that the thorn bush became the king of the trees of course not that would be necessitated however by the consistent application of serfati's hermeneutical demands in this blog since jotham's fable and nathan's parable are narrative. He leaves untouched the question of what kind of narrative is being dealt with. There are narrative parables, narrative fables, narrative histories, and even poetic or stylized narratives. Sarfati simply ignores these and acts as if narrative equals literal or modern journalistic history. Following this, Sarfati engages in a kind of appeal to authority. He cites two scholars who allegedly agree with him, James Barr and Stephen Boyd. Though, if how he cited Blosher is anything to go on, I think a level of skepticism is merited. Not to mention that Barr has been a rather vocal critic of young earth creationism and exegetical abuses like what Sarfati has demonstrated so far. So, I'm rather skeptical of that. But without having any of their work in front of me, I can't verify. He then lists three other Hebrew scholars that agree with the young earth creationist seven-day literal view, Andrew Steinman, Robert McCabe, and Ting Wang. Now, the question is, so what? I'm sure we could list far more who agree with that view, and we could list many who disagree with that view. The question is, what does the text say, not how many scholars agree with it? So far, that, that has not been handled, and the only ventures into dealing with the text have been rather superficial and committed some of the gross genre conflations that we've seen so far. So then he moves on to his next section. Are there triads of days? For those unfamiliar with literary framework, the triad of days refers to the triplicate nature of the days that are represented in Genesis 1 and how they relate to each other. These are often called something like kingdoms and kings. Um, for example, day one is light and dark, with day four presenting the luminaries to rule over night and day. Day two is the sky and the waters, with day five being the creaturely rulers of that realm, which are the fish and the birds. Day three is dry land, with day six being the beasts and the creaturely rulers of that realm, namely mankind. So there's this triad structure of days. 
Serfati rightly points out that even if there is a triad structure, which I would argue there is, that this does not rule out historical sequence. That's correct, and, and no literary framework advocate would ever say that Genesis may not follow the real historical order, order in which God created. Remember, Blosher himself wrote, quote, it is possible that the logical order he was chosen coincides broadly with the actual sequence of the facts of cosmogony, end quote. So that really isn't a problem for the literary framework view. He then goes on to try and point out inconsistencies in these triads. He quotes Grudem as presenting some of these problems. For example, that the luminaries, which are the rulers of day one, are created on day four, but that they're hung in the firmament, which was created in day two. Now, ignoring the problem that hanging the luminaries in the firmament would have for the literalist interpretation of Genesis 1 and their cosmology and how they related to science, this just simply isn't a problem for literary framework. The relationship in the triad is not that of chronology, but of administration. The luminaries were created to rule over the features established in day one. The fact that those rulers are not quote-unquote hung on something created on day one, but rather something that's created on day two, is simply not relevant to the relationship that the triads are meant to display. It would be like saying that the Queen of England cannot actually be the Queen of England who rules over the realm of England because she sits on a throne that was built after England was established. It's just a silly objection that no one would take seriously in any other analogous example. This same kind of misconstrual of what the relationship is supposed to be in this triad uh, between the kingdom and the king and the king's uh, relationship holds for really the next two objections that Serfati attempts to lob against literary framework, so we'll pass over those. At the end of this section, the reader who is familiar with literary framework and its proponents is simply left somewhat baffled how anyone with any familiarity with the literature would find these objections printworthy. So then we go to the next section where he asks, does Genesis 2.5 teach that only normal providence and nothing miraculous was used? Now, this is ostensibly a rejection of one of the reasons that Klein stated was one of his personal reasons for re-examining the text. As far as I can tell, this argument is rather tertiary to literary framework anyways. Klein was reading Genesis 2.5, in which we're told that there was no bush in the field and no plants had grown, quote, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, end quote. For Klein, this was an indication that God intended creation to operate based on normal, natural processes like the weather cycles that we see all around us today. That is, that the modus operandi of divine providence was operating in the same relationship to natural or ordinary providence like it does today. Basically, God created an ordered and law-governed cosmos and let it run as such, even from the beginning. In his normal, uncharitable manner, Serfati calls this quote-unquote desperation on the part of Klein. 
The problem is that Klein viewed this as an indication that his prior young earth creationist reading of the passage, which required the assumption of an almost meticulous tinkering and constant special intervention by God, seemed at odds with how God was presented his own modus operandi in Genesis 2.5. It did not lead Klein necessarily to the literary framework. And nothing in that reading of Genesis 2.5 required his interpretation revolution to fall into a literary one. He could have moved to another quasi-scientific and literalistic view that simply incorporated it. Once again, Sarfati is simply misrepresenting the order of events, where in, in the thought process, Klein's epiphany from Genesis 2.5 fell and what role it played for the development of his thought. It's not a reason to believe the literary framework. It was a reason that he re-examined the text. In fact, Sarfati shows that he does not even understand Klein's point. He writes, quote, Furthermore, Genesis 2.5 shows that normal providence was not operating. Note that God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. If creation happened over billions of years by Klein's version of normal providence, how could there be no rain? And if there had been no rain for eons of time since plants appeared, how did they survive? This only makes sense if the time frame of Genesis 1 is real, so there are no eons of time, only days. End quote. We have to remember that literary framework is time frame neutral. It does not commit itself to either young earth creationist or old earth creationist or middle age creationist or theistic evolution or anything like that. It says that Moses in writing Genesis simply was not concerned with those questions. So Serfati may be right. Maybe it only hadn't rained for a matter of days, or maybe it was weeks, or years, or decades, or millennia, or whatever. The point that Klein was hitting on was that God was telling us that in order for plants to grow, it needed to rain. God would not act in special creation and bring about plants outside of the natural process of the hydronic cycle. Plants need rain they needed it then, just like they need it now. And God said it that way from the very first plant. So Serfati actually, once again, shows that he is just not taking the time to understand the views of those he is castigating before responding. He's not taking the time to read to understand. He's just reading in order to react. And that is almost always a, a way to lead to motivated reasoning and heavy-handed bias. His final question then is, is Genesis merely the a theological argument or a polemic? Now, for those of you who have been following my work for some time, you'll know that this is where my interest in this topic really ramps up, polemics. I think that the addition of polemical theological views into the literary framework is an exegetical and biblical theological match made in hermeneutical heaven. The sad thing about this section is that it's actually so brief and so vague that it really just amounts to a Serfati saying, nuh-uh, and then he doubles back on, on its assumptions that the seven days must be literal because otherwise the Sabbath regulations in Exodus 20 wouldn't make any sense. 
which has nothing to do with polemics, by the way. Here, we can simply say that if Moses is the same author of Genesis and Exodus, then if he meant seven literal days in Genesis, he has the clear principle for the seven-day Sabbath principle. But if he used the seven-day week as a literary structure to order his presentation of creation, he also has a clear principle for the seven-day Sabbath principle. In fact, the sevenfold cycle goes beyond seven literal days, as it's also the framework for the Sabbath year every seventh year, and the year of Jubilee every seven seventh year, or every 49th year. So clearly, Moses and God have no problem using this sevenfold paradigm for the law, that it doesn't have to be a literal seven days. This is just simply a weak argument from young earth creationists to demand that creation was a weak punny, I know. Beyond that, almost nothing is said about literary, theological, or polemical aspects of the text, so really there's nothing else to respond to in this section. Sarfati then ends the article with this statement, quote, over and above all these arguments, the framework hypothesis suffers from the same problems as all other attempts to make the Bible compatible with the imaginary millions of years of historical science. By the way, that science is in quotes for some reason. It puts death and suffering before the fall, before Adam sinned and ushered death and suffering into God's very good creation, Genesis 1.31. This undermines the whole sweep and structure from paradise lost to paradise gained, which is the big picture of the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. End quote. Honestly, this is so inadequate that it's hard to take seriously, if I have to be honest. We've shown that not only do nearly all, really all, of his arguments fail, but also, he still seems to assume that the literary framework just is old earth creationism in disguise, trying to sneak millions and billions of years in through the back door. I, I've argued so many times that, that literary framework advocates are just as puzzled by young earth creationist attempts to fuse science into their understanding of Genesis 1 in the form of creation science as we are when old earth creationists try to smuggle in any other type of science into Genesis 1. Mainly because we understand, as literary framework advocates, we understand Genesis to be an ancient Near Eastern text written from an ancient Near Eastern pre-scientific worldview within an ancient Near Eastern cosmology colored by an ancient Near Eastern functional ontology. To accuse us of covertly smuggling in millions of years into the text is just absurd. It, it, it's like all he can see is old earth creationism in every opponent. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But because we're not committed as, uh, as literary framework advocates to a specific view of the age of creation, we're not also necessarily committed to death before the fall or suffering in God's very good creation. Although, I have to admit, as somewhat of a side, there's really an irony in this point, since he would need to say that on day one, God thought that light, the light that he created was good, but then, you know, scrapped it for the luminaries just two days later. But that's an aside. Finally, his 
really rather deceptive statement that this somehow undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ is such ideological axe grinding that I think even most young earth creationists would cringe at that statement. Now, I hope Brother Sarfati takes this friendly rebuke of this episode for what it is, and if he continues to publicly present the case for young earth creationism, he may want to learn to moderate his tone and engage with a more reasonable approach with less misrepresentations, bait and switches, and gross conflations of concepts. I sincerely hope that he takes the recommendation to heart since it was quite off-putting to try and discuss the topic with him. And that was even further reinforced by reading this article. Now, should he use these tactics with unbelievers, it could be even worse. It makes me thankful, and I'm all the more glad, that God still strikes straight blows with crooked sticks like Serfardi and myself, and salvation is still and always by his sovereign will. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email us at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or visit the Freedthinker group page on Facebook. Join us again next time as we continue to help Christians to think freely and to help free thinkers to be freed indeed. Good night, and God bless.